Hello, everyone. Talk here come Pacific waves from RNZ Pacific. Mikoroy Hawkins. Coming up. How high a seawall do you keep building? Do you keep increasing the height of the seawall because the sea level keeps rising? Just a few days into the climate talks at COP27, and Pacific island countries are already being strong-armed into taking the short end of the stick. Also, this is the second time that wives of those who were ousted got voted in. Tonga's parliament is to welcome three new MPs after recent by-elections, and later on, we've always thought politicians should get up there and do things, but things are deteriorating. If anything, we tell an to Sashi Karan, a prominent Fijian community leader who's made a last-minute decision to stand in the coming election. Before we get into all that, a brief news update. COVID-19 cases in Tuvalu have reached 443 as the country grapples with its first community outbreak. Last Wednesday, two probable COVID cases were found during routine testing. The next day, they were confirmed to be community cases and a COVID-19 outbreak was declared by the government. Lydia Lewis has the latest as of Wednesday, 9th of November. 303 new cases of coronavirus have been recorded by Tuvalu's Department of Health in the past three days. Two people have been hospitalised. Hospitals and health clinics in Tuvalu remain under COVID-19 emergency mode. The department says the government is set to announce new public health measures tonight. At the same time, Tuvalu is also dealing with a severe drought, with a state of public emergency declared for the whole country. Just a few days into the climate talks at COP27 and Pacific Island countries are already being strong-armed into taking the short end of the stick. While the inclusion of loss and damage climate financing on the agenda has been labelled a momentum shift, the reality is compensation and liability funding for vulnerable islands will not be realised in this meeting. Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat Program Advisor for Resilient Development Finance, Carlos Moresi, spoke with Lydia Lewis about the Pacific's position on the inclusion of loss and damage to the COP27 agenda. For us in the Pacific, uh, that is a win for us. We've been fighting for this uh, for a number of years now, trying to get into the uh, mainstream negotiation process. And finally, we managed to get a specific agenda item on loss and damage. What is that specific agenda item? And I understand that there was some heated discussion over the specifics around that as well. Yes. Uh, the request went through uh, from Bonn, through the G77, so the Pacific uh, negotiation block. We uh, obviously negotiated through the OASIS, Association of Small Island States, which then fits into a bigger group, which is the G77 plus China. We requested the president to have included another matters relating to finance, a specific sub-item on loss and damage. Now, we, you probably heard the start of the actual opening session was delayed, and that's because the negotiators were in, in the negotiating rooms right until like 5 o'clock in the morning, trying to agree on the language. And the sticky point is the insistence by our um, developed countries, the umbrella group, that loss and damage should not relate or have anything to do with compensation and liability. And they wanted that language specifically included in the agenda notation. Obviously, from the Pacific, the way we see it is actually that's limiting our future options. That got in. But the way we saw it is some people might say it's actually we gave in, but we didn't. That the most important thing is to get into the agenda. Because now that we have a process, so getting to the agenda actually allows us to actually engage in a process. And with the changing of the wording, what does that mean? 
Okay, so the way we saw it is that the unit triple C process is only one process with, if you look at the global context of loss and damage. So the way we saw it, you're probably aware there is, so we're linking it, there's a, uh, a move by Vanuatu to go to the UN to seek an opinion from the International Court of Justice around the actual liability of polluting countries for the climate change impacts and the damages that are caused. So the way we saw it is that we should not restrict ourselves. So we're looking at the, the bigger game. So the unit process and negotiations is one element of addressing loss and damage. So to get into the agenda, we have the discussion, but it leaves us other options outside of the actual unit triple C process. If people can recall the establishment of the Green Climate Fund, that took eight years to get it through. From the time it was actually agreed as a process, it was time it was established. If we don't get engaged in this process, so we're looking at the, the, the long-term uh, game rather than just, just, just the specific reading on, on one specific item for this COP, noting that there'll be other COPs. But there's, there's a, a bittersweet uh, way to look at it because one way we look at it is the one of, one of the hampering uh, incidents with uh, with cops is that because there's another cop next year, so there's a tendency to kick the ball down the road. Uh, but I, th I think with the with the, with the wording that we actually we, we've included, so the wording actually includes also a timeline that a decision should be made by 2024. So the ball is rolling now. What will it look like when it's completed? Yeah, thank you. So to look, to look at loss and damage, we really have to look at the, the starting point of the climate nexus, so to speak. So we, we cannot go away from the actual addressing climate, climate change issues, which is actually mitigation and reducing global warming. What we are arguing is that because we have failed to address mitigation, to reduce carbon emissions, to reduce global warming, we've, we've needed to adapt. So that's the link between um, mitigation and adaptation. Beyond adaptation, we've also found that the, because adaptation is not keeping up in, uh, in line or in time with the impacts of the climate change uh, issues, even the adaptations, we're experiencing limitations of adaptation. To give you an example, if you're talking about sea level rise, the adaptation measure has always been in the, you know, traditionally been building seawalls or coastal protection. How high a seawall do you keep building? Do you keep increasing the height of the seawall because the sea level keeps rising? At some point, the seawall inundate the coastal, the coastal areas. And that's when we come into the area of loss and damage. So I just want to make it quite clear for your audience that there is actually, we're just going, we're not just going asking for money for the sake of asking for money for loss and damage. It's actually the link between the failure of mitigation, the limitations of adaptation, that now we have to look at loss and damage. What does, what does that mean for the Pacific Island countries? It means that um, there are options should you lose your coastal uh, land, your rights to your coastal traditional fishing rights and fishing grounds, your traditional livelihoods. And the worst case scenario is when this has to be migration caused by or displacement caused by uh, climate change, that there is, there, there is recourse for the communities. Would this mean developed nations would have to back pay, obviously following years of underpayment? Yes, and, and, and that's, definitely, that's definitely the argument from the uh, developed countries to definitely not include liability and compensation. So that is that they do not have to do back payments, you know, in your words. Uh, there are other avenues. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there is also a push from the developed countries to have, which is the alternative resource and damage facility, which is uh, in a facility being pushed by Germany called the Global Shield, and that's very insurance-based. We, we don't really accept the insurance uh, modality 
only in the sense that it only compensates for loss already already suffered. So in terms of the back payments, uh, we haven't really got that discussion, but we cannot avoid that. What is going to be on paper at the end of this meeting? At the very least, what we're expecting is that the the club, the, the parties to the, to the convention, agree on a systematic process for arrangements. This is the term that's actually going to be hearing about. For, so we're not talking about, when we, when we talk about loss and damage financing facility, yeah, obviously most people are always just talking about the money. What we're actually talking about is actually loss and damage arrangements that might include financing elements. And those arrangements actually talk about making assessments of what loss and damage actually is, what the potential cost could be, and what are the areas that we can uh, address those issues before the actual losses are suffered. So those are all part of elements of the bigger picture of loss and damage. So at the very least, we want an agreement on a systematic approach for developing the loss and damage arrangements. The Tonga Legislative Assembly is to welcome three new MPs after by-elections last week. The by-elections happened after then-Deputy Prime Minister Poissite and Cabinet Ministers Sankta Saulala and Tatafu Moyaki were found guilty of bribery leading into last year's general election. The winners include returning MP Mateni Tapuelelu, who had been a minister during the Akilisi Pohiva years in charge, businessman Paula Piukala and Dalcite, the wife of the former Deputy Prime Minister. Don Wiseman spoke with our Tonga correspondent, Kalafi Moala, and began by asking about the significance of Dalcite's victory. He won by 400 votes, so that was quite significant, which shows there has been a very strong support. That's in the Tongatapu number six uh, area. But that's a pattern that was started by the Labu Labus. You remember back in 2008, 16, when uh, Etuate Lavulavu was put out of parliament because of the same issue of, uh, of bribery in the election. And they had a, a by-election, and then his wife won that by-election. So this is, again, the second time that we've had wives of uh, those who were ousted out of uh, parliament and, and cabinet got voted in. What can we expect from Dulcie Tay? The background is that she's a school teacher, have had a, a very good record in terms of administration and in, in her job as a teacher. I think what we expect of her is she's going to continue the same kind of policy that her husband. Work very strong in the community, the constituency, as well as give very strong support to the government. Remember, her husband was the deputy prime minister, so she's going to continue the strong support, and I won't be surprised if she would be appointed by the prime minister as a a minister to the cabinet. Let's look at the other two by-elections. One sees Martini Tepoeloelu returning. Is that a surprise? No, it was not a surprise. In many of the surveys and the polls, he, he was actually uh, a front runner. And the person who was second to him was also a front runner. So it was a toss up between, uh, between the two, between himself and the other person, uh, who was uh, Takao, his last name, who was, by the way, a very strong supporter of the government and the prime minister had uh, been campaigning for him as well. The third winner was Paolo Piocala. Yes. Tell me about him. Well, he is, of course, a very strong uh, supporter of the Bohiva group. 
possibly the most radical of them, calling for major, continuing major reforms to take place, democratic reforms. And it's quite a surprising win for him because he, he comes from an area that is very strongly conservative or pro government support. And so for him, the win outright there was a, a surprise, but it really adds on to the Tarpatoa uh, or the opposition party strength. In contrast to the situation with the, the seat that had been occupied by Boasite, thanks to Solala's seat, his wife ran there, but she wasn't successful. No, she was not. She was number two. In other words, the second to the, the winner. And uh, that's why Piukala's election was very surprising uh, because he won uh, three of the big villages in the constituent. Three villages that he didn't live in or didn't really belong to, uh, he won uh, quite handily over there. All right, so success for two acolytes of uh, Akalisi Pohiva, what does it mean? It means that now they're going to, their numbers are growing in parliament, and if they were to combine with other opposition MPs, it is quite possible that they can win a vote of no confidence when the time comes. It's really a matter of them finding a leader. That's correct. Uh, The interesting thing is that the two people that both won in the by-election, the two Patoa people, uh, at least people who have followers, are two people that have been known for the tensions that existed between them uh, for leadership of the Patoa party. So that's the weakness that continue to haunt the party, that there is not uh, the strong unity that they should have. There are continuous tensions concerning who's going to be the leader. Sashi Kiran is a prominent Fijian community leader renowned for her work supporting disadvantaged and rural communities in the country. Last week, Ms. Karan made a surprise announcement that she was stepping down as the head of the Foundation of Rural Integrated Enterprises and Development, or FRIEND, an NGO she founded and led for over two decades to contest the December 14 national elections. Ms. Kiran says she decided to join the nation's oldest political establishment, the National Federation Party, because of the deteriorating human rights situation under the current government of Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, who has been in power since 2006. She speaks to ANZ Pacific's regional correspondent, Calvin Anthony, about her political ambitions and her vision for Fiji. There have been uh, many challenges that I think too often we've, you know, over the last decade, we've always thought politicians would be, would, would get up there and do things. But things are deteriorating, if anything, whether it's water infrastructure, health infrastructure, roads, electricity, uh, lack of electricity and solar in some of the rural communities I work with, education, malnutrition, poor food in boarding schools. So for too long, I feel I've sat back thinking that what I have to offer on the ground is much more impactful than what I could do probably inside. But that push over the cliff has actually been uh, the human rights violations we've been seeing and in particular the persecution of the opposition. So that has really made me decide very, very last minute that it's something I think I have no option uh, that I can do. Do you think that uh, the NFP is the right political party to help you achieve your political goals? and to make a difference in the political sphere? 
NFP is one of the oldest parties we've had. The motto is uh, one country, one nation, and something that I've been fighting for the last 20 plus years since the civil unrest, that how do we bring uh, ethnic groups to become one as, as people? And the leaders involved in the party have attracted me. Um, if you look at Professor Biman, he has left an academic job, taken a ma- massive pay cut because he's committed to the people. People like Richard Naidu, who have been so committed. You know, these are the people who could go and make their own money else. But the commitment of some of these leaders have given me hope that actually I can work with them. You can communicate. People are listening to each other. We are engaging. And uh, I think for any party to be able to lead or to engage with such, such massive issues, there has to be a community full of leaders who are willing to listen to each other, willing to take each other's opposing views. And that is reflected well in that party. Now, you are very well connected with the communities in Fiji and people in Fiji would argue that you have a following as much as uh, Prime Minister Frank Mainamarama himself. How has the reaction been from people since you've announced that you are contesting the December 14 election? There's been mixed reactions. I think some people have seen me in the role for so long that they can't imagine, like people have said to me, where will we go now, whether we need a wheelchair or food or, you know, we could call you or natural disaster we could count on you to be on the ground so there's like oh my god you're leaving but also wherever you are uh, at least you can amplify our voices i'm kind of shocked because i'd never thought politics never done politics didn't understand what a campaign i still don't understand fully what a campaign means but the uh, the number of people who've reached out from the communities and they said we are grateful that we'll have a voice you know you're, you're so well aware of our issues you'll take our voice and we know you'll do something about it because you've done things every time you've heard us. That's given me a lot of boost as well that yes, when with almost no resources when we listen to people outside, we've tried our best. Hopefully with resources and networks and lobby, we could do much more. But at the same time, I feel a huge burden on my shoulders. It's like expectations from the ground is so huge. And the first couple of days I sat back and thought, would I be able to carry it through? You know, would I be able to live up to the expectations? Because the situation on the ground is so bad that people expect so much and I don't know whether we can how much we'd be able to achieve in the first uh, you know six months or first one year uh, considering the debt burden that we have it's overwhelming and you know the pressure is there to be able to do more for the people what is your vision for a prosperous and thriving Fiji very simple we've had many uh, ethnic groups living together and and during each of these political events we see there's a lot of rift and you know push uh, try to try and divide people I would really love to see one people. Our issues are the same when there's a water cut in the in the pipes. It affects all ethnic groups. So coming together as one people because there's so many skills and resources in the community that could be put together and be able to give our people the very basics of needs to begin with. Water, electricity, hospital, medicines, infrastructure, education, malnutrition may, being a mega issue that needs to go. You know, NCDs, uh, mobility aid, disability care. Very, very simple things things that many countries around us have achieved us and there's absolutely no reason if our leaders have the will we can't change the status quo for the people you know welfare allowance for god's sake people are on hundred dollars or barely a month for, for a very long time and in today's day and age that achieves nothing in a basket uh, we have two hundred thousand people living in poverty we can do very targeted work and make sure that our people live a dignified life out of poverty 
That's Specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, for here to come. Tomorrow you'll have my colleague Susanna Suisuiki as your host.